Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. I'm your host, Aliza Arja. Today, I'm joined by Heba Gowayed, the Mormon Simon Assistant Professor of Sociology at Boston University, and we'll be talking about her book, Refuge, How the State Shapes Human Potential, recently published by Princeton University Press. Thank you very much, Heba, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Elise. It's a true pleasure. Of course. Uh, I'm really excited to learn more about this very important book. Um, But I'll take a more conventional start to our conversation. So usually at the New Books Network, uh, we start our episodes by getting to know our authors a little better. So I was wondering if you can tell us about yourself and how you conceived of this book. Sure. Um, So I am Egyptian-American. And as I say in my in my methods appendix to my book, uh, you know, hyphenated identities have gotten a lot of flack and for good reason. But for me, it's a real illustration of who I am. I grew up, I was born in Cairo, uh, but I grew up, my family migrated to the United States when I was quite young. I did my K through 12 in the United States, moving around the country. And then in at 18 or at 17, really, I decided I was going to move back to Cairo and do my undergrad there. Um, And despite sort of my father's hesitance and concern over me going back to Cairo when they'd moved to the United States for the educational opportunities that it offered. And uh, the time in Cairo was super meaningful to me because it taught me a lot about the politics of the region, the intricacies of the region, um, what it was like to live there, you know, what the experiences of people were, um, both in terms of adversity, but also in terms of joy, right? It was a beautiful place to spend uh, my college years. And my college years ended um, in me joining the American University in Cairo's Social Research Institute. Um, And from there, where I was studying poverty, I was working on a team that was working on poverty alleviation policy. And while I did that work, uh, the country due to experiences of inequality, due to experiences of poverty, um, due to regional dictatorships, joined a regional movement, um, which came to be termed later as the Arab Spring, to demand bread freedom and social justice. Um, and um, and they they we spent and I was I was in Tahrir Square and we spent you know those weeks there and on February 11th um, Mubarak um, who was the president at the time who had been the president for my entire life um, stepped down from office um, and we really were hopeful for a new beginning in our country and at that time um, our brothers and sisters in Syria. 
um, had also begun their own social movement, uh, you know, that began in the streets, first protesting local government officials, and then also protesting the Assad regime. And as a result um, of their protest movements, right, and as a result of our protest movements, um, we saw that, you know, there was a dictatorial backlash. And in Egypt, this looked like the retrenchment of the military, um, but in Syria, it looked like a civil war. Um, And so, you know, the Syrian story for me has always been uh, intertwined with my own understanding of my identity. And in 2010, as a young researcher in Cairo, I actually got the chance to visit Syria, uh, or maybe it was 2009, somewhere in there, I got the chance to visit Syria. (laughs) And what is time? Um, But I got the chance to visit Syria and, you know, for a public health conference. And I met and I spent time in Aleppo and I spent time in Damascus. And it was a really beautiful experience because people were so excited um, to have an Egyptian there. Everybody reminded me that Egypt and Syria were in fact one country between 1969, 1971 under the United Arab Republic um, under Nasser. And, you know, it was a real moment of joy for me. It was a really beautiful trip. So when I started grad school, and this was, I started grad school shortly after the revolution. So I started grad school in 2012, and I was doing a master's at Columbia. I didn't imagine staying in the United States. I imagined coming to the United States for a year because I was working in poverty alleviation policy. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to become a principal investigator on some kind of project um, in my country. Um, But what ended up happening is that you know, the the situation in Egypt deteriorated as I continued my graduate work. I fell in love with academia and um, I applied for the PhD and I got in to Princeton um, and I began, you know, um, doing research thinking that I was going to continue to do research in my country. So I began to conceptualize a a project that was centered on poverty poverty alleviation policy, which is what I'd always done. Um, But, you know, as I developed that project, the situation in Egypt really deteriorated further. And you had, you know, Giulia Regini, um, a young Italian uh, researcher uh, was killed. Um, you know, people had been imprisoned. I had friends of mine who had been imprisoned. Um, and and at the same time, I was being told in my field site that, you know, I, I, I shouldn't continue to visit, right, by, by sort of authorities that were involved. And I was told that I wouldn't be protected if I continue to do this research. And as a result, I found myself in a situation where my my project that I had conceptualized. And at this point, I'm in my fourth year of my PhD, right? So at a very pivotal moment, at a very pivotal moment, I recognize that, okay, I have no more projects. And I come back to the United States um, and I really feel sorry for myself. And I lay on a couch um, in New Haven, Connecticut, where my husband was living at the time. Yeah, I'm feeling really like sad for me. Um, And at that time, uh, you know, it was the summer of 2015. And on all summer, I had been watching um, intently as Syrians were making their way from uh, Turkey to across the Aegean and into Europe and beginning what, you know, became this uh, refugee movement that became this iconic, you know, images of people taking boats, uh, taking these blow up boats, but also, um, you know, loading on trains, um, and getting to these European destinations. And as I was watching this, I learned too that in the United States, uh, people would be resettled here as well. As I watched this, um, 
you know, I learned that people were becoming resettled in the United States as well. Um, and, and I saw that they were being resettled also in New Haven, Connecticut. So, you know, uh, my husband was actually in the kitchen uh, making breakfast and I was lying on the couch um, feeling sad for myself. And he poked his head out as he, we were both watching the same program where they were saying this and he sort of poked his head out from the kitchen and looked at me and he said, did you hear that? And I said, yeah. And then I dressed and I, I looked up the organization, the, the resettlement agency that was resettling people in New Haven, and uh, they were having a, a, like a booth at a local fair. So I dressed in business casual to go to this uh, fair, and I introduced myself to the lawyer, and that's how the project began. Wow, it's really helpful to learn about the circuitous paths that lead to a book and yeah it's very interesting to hear about you know how you conceive of something there but it becomes here which is um, a theme that I will actually pick up on later on Um, but before we do that you know one thing that really struck me about the book is how you know instead of focusing on um, what it takes for Uh, Syrian communities to get resettled, you focus on uh, what happens after resettlement and, you know, what happens after refuge, basically. And specifically, you show us how the state where people end up shapes human potential through investment, recognition, and often lack thereof. So this brings me to my question What is at stake in taking potential as a lens into how Syrian lives are structured across the U.S., Canada, and Germany like you do in the book? Yeah, so something that I, uh, you know, a starting point, a departure point for the book is the idea that, and that's why I call it refuge, right, is the idea that in resettlement and asylum, you know, the process of displacement doesn't end, right? So we can think of these, while we think of these, we conceptualize these often as durable solutions to the problem of displacement. And this is what the United Nations calls them. And this is how countries perceive them. From the perspective of the person who's displaced, when they arrive to countries of resettlement and asylum, they're experiencing a number of significant losses. They've lost their home. They've lost family members, you know, to to violence and to war. Um, They've lost uh, the ability to be co-present with family members who are still alive. Um, They also are arriving to a place where their their norms and traditions don't have the same resonance, where they're going to have to be strangers to new systems that are not hospitable to them, right? Um, Because as we know, destination countries too feature their own inequalities, right? Of race, of gender, of class that all intersect to shape the institutions that people are going to be received through. And so the experience of displacement, the experience of arrival, even for people who um, you know, have these legal remedies that the vast majority of, you know, the 80 million people who are displaced in the world are denied, it still means feeling isolated, feeling alone. Uh, I make an argument in the book to say, you know, the safer they got, the stranger people felt. And so the conceptualization or the framework of potential is really, to me, a humanizing framework because it doesn't ask, you know, do people contribute? It doesn't ask, do people fit in? It, It instead centers 
the people who are arriving in their full humanity as dreamers, as builders, as people who have, you know, hopes and aspirations for themselves and their children, um, and who have so many also skills and abilities that can be activated if only they're recognized and if only they're given the tools to use them. And so, you know, by centering, by reframing away from actual outcomes or how, to what extent people contribute, and instead thinking about who the human beings are and what their possibilities and potential is, we really, in my mind, recenter the human um, who is often lost in the process of migration. When we think of people as masses, as hordes, you know, we think of them from from frameworks of assimilation and integration, even, you know, among uh, in, in the most sort of liberal terms, we use these phrases that take a very linear approach to migration and center questions of productivity rather than asking what the experiences and realities and ideas are of the individual who's arriving to a country and what their hopes are for themselves as well. Absolutely. And I love how throughout the book, yes, you do this work of recentering um, you know, Syrian refugees, but you do that without exceptionalizing them. Uh, so especially, you know, you show us that their uh, histories and what they're going through is really intertwined with minoritized and racialized communities across these contexts. So I also want to know what Refuge tells us about how states structure the potential of racialized communities besides Syrians. Yeah, this is a great question, Elise. And I think that one way to think about it is that refugees or people seeking refuge in these three countries as newcomers to these three countries who come from backgrounds. So the people in my book, for those of you, um, you know, who are new to it, are middle class people. So I specifically selected people who, you know, are middle class, had maybe they worked as artisans, they had small businesses, they were chefs, they were carpenters, um, you know, electricians, blacksmiths, but they did not have high levels of credentials. Um, and they, but they were, you know, industrious sort of entrepreneurial types. And the reason for that, uh, you know, just to give you a slight bit of background is that in order to be able to flee the country, you need a little bit of money, right? Um, so, but you, but people who had a lot of money were able to leave the country, not as resettled refugees, not as, you know, experiencing these additional displacements. So very wealthy people were able to have a better pathway, low income, the most low income people have remained in Syria, right? They lack the resources to be able to move. So that's the reason why people who uh, sought immediate refuge in Jordan or in Turkey or in Lebanon tended to be among this middle class group. And certainly the people resettled um, tended largely to be among this middle class group. So when we center their experiences, what we do is we raise a mirror to the systems in which they're received because you have three, you have the same group of people who arrives in three different countries and has very different outcomes. And so you can't explain those different outcomes based on the individuals, right? You can't explain these different outcomes based on something that, you know, it's because they're Syrian or it's because they're middle class or it's because of the kinds of skills they bring with them. And instead, you have to focus on, okay, the variation is explained by the state because we're looking at, you know, this experience, we're keeping constant the kinds of people who are arriving to these countries. And when you look at it that way, you begin to raise a mirror to the kinds of inequalities that are inherent in the welfare systems and in the incorporation systems that derive from them. 
that then uh, receive these new arrivals. And so you, you know, in the United States, for instance, we have this idea that the culture of poverty is something that we've let go. The idea that low-income people are low-income because they behave differently than high-income people is something that is passe. It's something that we left in the past. But in practice, our welfare systems are structured that way. So you have temporary assistance for needy families, for instance, which is our welfare program, is structured to push people towards the labor market, to disincentivize them from staying out of the labor market. And therefore, it has very, very low amounts of assistance, has lifetime limits on assistance, and it requires people to regularly be searching for jobs while they receive this assistance. Well, the whole concept of that program is that low-income people don't want to work, right? So when we look at how the experience of these newcomers Syrians to this same system, what we're revealing and, and how when they are faced with the same system, they experience poverty as a result of the system, it clarifies how the system itself uh, you know, serves to structure inequality within the country, right? It clarifies that, you know, American resettlement, as I argue in the book, um, you know, is is marked by a sort of resettlement into American poverty, which is marked by stagnation and populated by people of color by design. It's not a coincidence that Syrians end up living in low-income neighborhoods. It's not a coincidence that they end up working the same dead-end, um, you know, low-wage jobs. But this is how our social service system, for instance, in the United States, is structured. Mm-hmm. And the same can be, sorry, the same yeah. can be true, is also true for Germany. So, you know, in Germany, you have a 5% Turkish minority. Syrians are, you know, the 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 reaction to Syrians is very much tied to the reaction to uh, Turkish people, to the racism that Turkish people experience in the German case. Um, and, and, you know, we know, for instance, Syrians are struggling with the credentialization system in Germany, which requires them to acquire the same credentials that Germans do. And that 85% of the German population has, you know, uh, credentials, whether it be a secondary credential or a university credential. Then people who don't have a credential tend to be people who are minorities from a Turkish background. And the reason for that is because they're systematically excluded from the system, right? So when we look at these systems and we look at the struggle that Syrians have in terms of credentialization and we look at who else is left out, that's again, not a coincidence, right? These systems work um, or these, these policies work systematically to exclude people who are minoritized, racialized, uh, who are racialized minorities from uh, reaping the rewards and the resources of the system. Indeed, and I think, you know, your background that you explained to us a little bit shows your attentiveness to these connections between racialization and political economy, which I found really, really important. And another thing I want to ask you about is gender. So something that your book does so beautifully is really show these human experiences that don't put Syrians as this, you know, big homogenous blob. And I'm very curious about how gender figured into these, um, you know, legal solutions that we often seem to not work. Yeah, I mean, you know, as as uh, Piret Hondegano-Sotelo um, tells us, or as Nazli Kibria teaches us, you know, scholars who have looked at immigration and gender, um, the, the whole process of migration is a gendered process, right? The process of departure, the process of experiencing the, the legal, um, you know, policies, the process of resettlement. And it's gendered both in the sense that our policies are gendered, our policies have gender expectations for families, and it's gendered in the sense that individuals also have gender expectations 
expectations for themselves, right? Notions of how men and women should and do behave, notions of what's appropriate, right? Um, also, you know, in terms of sexuality, right? So these heteronormative conceptions of, you know, what a family should look like and how people should behave. And this is a really... Um, important thing to think about. And it requires sort of a nuanced understanding of intersectionality, because it's not just, um, you know, that gender and race and racial inequalities are colliding, but that, you know, there are there are multiple understandings of gender and race that that coexist, right? Um, and that are all, you know, sh- that look different across institutions, and that are all sort of um, consorting to shape the experiences of these new arrivals. So for instance, you know, we have this understanding or, you know, that life, that a movement to the West, and it's a very orientalizing understanding that movement to the West is necessarily liberating for the Muslim woman, right? You come from a, a gender repressive country and therefore, and you come to the America and look at all the opportunities that you have available to you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny to us, but this is a real sort of understanding. It's just a sort of assumption that we, that people approach questions of immigration with but when you and when you parse it out what's what's in and and they do you know when when they try to find evidence for this they say oh look well women are more involved in the labor market or uh, women access educational services more or any of these kinds of metrics and you know the the response to them is not to say you know that there aren't opportunities that open up in migration of course there are opportunities that open up in migration this is just a fact of migration right when you move from one place to another you're experiencing different systems, you're experiencing different structures. So naturally opportunities open up. But the question is also, how else are they experiencing the context of reception? So for instance, you know, in the case of women arriving in Germany, of Syrian women arriving in Germany, um, they do see the credential, the credentialization pathway, as I argue in my book, as an opportunity to acquire a credential that might matter for the German labor market. They're simultaneously experiencing tremendous amounts of racism in the German labor market. For instance, one woman in my study was told that she couldn't be a daycare worker because uh, her hijab would send a wrong message to the children, right? Um, in the United States, women do, you know, uh, engage, for instance, in learning the language where their husbands cannot. Um, they do, uh, you know, find new ways to express their human capital, to make uh, goods from home, etc. But at the same time, they're experiencing a crushing and defeating poverty that leaves them fearing eviction, fearing not being able to feed their children, fears that they did not previously have. Um, and also, even as they're experiencing these, you know, shifts, these these slight shifts, they're also grappling with an American, uh, you know, system that again racial, you know, racializes them, discriminates against them, um, you know. And during the travel ban, during the Trump administration in particular, hate crimes were at an all time high, and they tended to be targeted towards women wearing the hijab. So as we think about these questions of what opportunities immigration opens up vis a vis gender, and what opportunities it closes, and how it shapes the lives of people, we have to really be attentive to the intricacies of context and take ourselves away. I find the question of whether migration is liberating for women or not to be really <laughs> trite. You know, it's it's a bad question. And instead, we need to ask because because it's not because gender isn't linear and questions of even questions of liberation for any of us are not linear. It doesn't make any sense to ask it in that way. But we need to really be attentive to how contexts Uh, you know, the opportunities and the constraints that contexts provide as these institutions sort of, you know, shape and interact to uh, create new possibilities, but also new obstacles uh, for people who are on the move. 
Absolutely. And, you know, you draw our attention to context very vividly throughout the book. But since we're the Mobility is a Methods channel, I'm also interested in the relationship between contexts. Uh, and in Refuge, you know, you conceptualize this as the here and there that are intimately connected. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate on these connections and what are the political stakes of really parsing out the here and there as connected? Yeah, I mean, this is a really excellent question as well, because in Refuge, I argue that the way that states shape the resources of people here, right, whereas where here is the United States, Canada and Germany is our vantage in this story, um, really matters for the lives of family members who they've left either back home in Syria, but also who are dispersed in this diaspora that's created by the war, but also by very hostile borders to people fleeing the war. So, and this, let me take a step back to tell the listeners, um, you know, and to teach the listeners a little about sort of where people sit in this global displacement story. So the vast majority of displaced people uh, remain in their countries of origin. So the vast majority are internally displaced. Some subset of displaced people is able to leave their country of origin. I think the number right now is around 25 million. And those, the vast majority of those people remain in countries very proximate to their own. So when we're talking about resettlement and asylum, we're talking about a very small percentage of people. So the number of people who receive resettlement and resettlement uh, for, for the listener is where a state, after you arrive in the country of immediate refuge and you register with the United Nations Higher Council for Refugees, vets you for potential travel to their country. So what's very important to know about resettlement is that you're selected for travel and you don't get to choose which country selects you. You could say yes or no, but you don't get to choose the country. There's very few countries around the world that offer resettlement as a solution. So it's, it's you know, between 20 or 30 countries in any given year. And less than half of 1% is ever actually offered resettlement as a possibility. For people who are also in countries of immediate refuge um, and who need to leave. And what's very important to know is that possibilities for education are very dismal in countries of immediate refuge. People are often undocumented. Um, you know, there are often very few uh, healthcare opportunities, very few labor market opportunities. And so it's a very difficult life for people who are living in camps or outside of camps in these countries. But if you live in this situation and you want a different kind of life, Often the only solution for you is asylum. And asylum is where you travel to another country, a country like Germany, um, a country like the UK, and you uh, and you show up and also the United States, for instance, through the Mexican border, and you show up there and you apply for legal status. And you can either be accepted or denied through your application for legal status. And the reason that I give you this framework is that people in the United States who are resettled, which are the people in my case, are sort of the privileged group of, of, of displaced people, right? These are the people who have been selected to travel to the wealthiest country in the world. And as such, their relatives who are dispersed, many of whom are in Syria, the, many of whom are in Jordan, Turkey, and Lebanon, some of whom might be in elsewhere in Europe in, in, in different kinds of situations, may look to them for support, right? And they want to be able to support them. And this support looks like sending remittances, sending money to these family members. It also looks like trying to bring their family members here. And in both these instances, being able to send money back 
or bringing family members here, the resources that you receive in the country in which you are resettled or in which you've sought asylum really shape your possibility to do so. You can't send money home if you can't make money, right? But also welfare money is restricted. So countries deny you the possibility of sending money home if you're receiving it from the state. Similarly, in terms of bringing people here in order in the United States, for instance, in order to be able to reunify with family members, you need to have citizenship. Citizenship requires that you A, pay $1,000 to apply or almost $1,000 to apply, and B, pass the citizenship exam, which requires you to have a level of fluency in English. Now, I've told you that these countries deny people's possibilities to learn the English language, um, uh, or, you know, uh, sorry, the United States denies people's possibility to learn the English language. And as a result, people find themselves five years after their arrival without a grasp of the language, which is why, for instance, at BU, we've started a citizenship clinic, which I'm happy to elaborate on, um, you know, further in this conversation. But what this means is that if you have a dearth of possibility, if you have a dearth of resources where you are, you're less able to support family members in other countries who are themselves living in a world, and this is to get to your question, Elise, about the global context, who are living in a global context that refuses to support them, right? We are shirking globally our responsibility to provide even a semblance of, you know, humanity, a semblance of support to people in countries who are displaced. Uh, there is no, you know, there is some level of support. There's very basic support. It falls very, very short of the needs of people in countries of immediate refuge. And as a result of this, you know, in Jordan, a recent study found that only 25% of Syrians in secondary school education uh, attend school. And so it's a real uh, denial and, um and devaluation and dehumanization of human life that we're seeing on a global level that in a sense, people who are resettled and who have sought asylum are resisting by trying to send money home. But they themselves are caught up in these same inequalities because as we know, you know, the, the same racism that fuels foreign policies for these countries, fuels, you know, the imperial interventions, fuels uh, IMF uh, loans, fuels, um, you know, the extent to which people are willing to help people in refugee camps in Jordan, the extent to which the United States government or European governments are willing to help people in Jordan or Turkey and Lebanon is the same racism that structures the inequalities within the country. And this is something W.E.B. Du Bois taught us, you know, in, in, in the beginning of the, of the century, of the last century. So as we think about these, we really have to think about them in terms of global inequality, in terms of a post-colonial world, um, and in terms of a racial contract, right, as Mills would teach us, that is structured to deny certain people resources, um, you know, to hoard resources against Black and Brown folks globally and domestically. Absolutely. And this reminds me of you know, the part of your book about complicity that really stayed with me. And I think you make a very important reminder that accepting refugees doesn't absolve um, these empires from creating the worlds that migrants now have to navigate. And I'm curious about how this um, reminder about complicity informs your human-centric approach to immigration. Yeah, 100. That's an excellent question um, because, you know, we have this idea or 
when we think about refuge, when we think about asylum and we think about resettlement in countries talk about this, even the concept or the term of durable solution, um, the pressure that we put on states to receive refugees, the idea, for instance, that the Biden administration has committed to 125,000 was lauded for increasing that number, despite the fact that, of course, for those of you following, they've only taken 9,000 people and the fiscal year ends in a couple of months. They've only taken 9,000 out of the committed 125,000 this year through resettlement, is that it, it, it frames a picture. And, and in our laws, this is, this is the picture in how we talk about refuge. This is the picture that receiving countries are saviors and people who are displaced are victims. And this dichotomy, this way of thinking about the world really misses the fact that people are moving towards coveted destinations that are coveted because they gained money at their expense. And uh, I recently read Tendai Achuma's piece, uh, which argues that we should think about migration as a form of decolonization, because she says, if we put migration in historical context, uh, people have reaped the benefits. Uh, you know, countries in the global north have reaped the benefits of the extraction, right, of the manipulative extraction of countries and the brutal extraction from countries in the global south. And this is why the global inequality looks the way it does. And this is why people, you know, migration channels look the way they, they, they look. So as we tell the story of migration, if we miss the first part, if we miss the part that people are moving towards, you know, these coveted destinations that are the source of their injuries also, and are coveted because they're the source of their injuries, then then we 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 think of these Western countries as necessarily you know offering um, as being magnanimous, right? Um, which of course in that framework they're doing the they're doing not even the minimum to mitigate the impact of of the injury that they've caused. And you know there I'm this is not a, a theoretical point. Um, in order to understand the Syrian war, you have to understand French colonialism. You have to understand, um, you know, that there's a divide and conquer strategy that shaped, uh, you know, the, the sectarianism that we see, um, you know, similarly with Vietnam, similarly with, um, you know, throughout the world, we can see this repeated again and again, right? Is that colonial uh, interventions created situations that became untenable. Similarly with American imperialism, you ISIS was born in a U.S. prison in Camp Bucca in Iraq. And so when we think about these kinds of aspects, we have to, you know, hold the countries, the receiving countries accountable. And that brings me to my second point on this, which is that you know, then the then the idea when we frame it as savior victim dichotomy, then it becomes that the saving is just to open the doors. And if these Western countries open their doors to refugees, then they should be then the refugees should be eternally grateful that Colossus, you know, they've opened the door and that ends the problem of displacement. And and that, you know, now it's time your time to show gratitude. Right. Um but this idea of being grateful is is uh, questionable to me because nobody's salvation is American poverty, right? Nobody's salvation is American racism. Nobody's salvation is German racism. And at the end of the day, we have a situation in which people are, you know, countries see it as their responsibility to just open the door. And then what happens next 
is 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 sort of less less paid attention to in our journalistic coverage, in our media coverage, and even in our policies. You know, people stop asking questions once people are safe. But you know, safety from violence is not the only need of a human being. Is not the only thing that shapes humanity. We we require much more than safety from violence, and particularly we can offer in these destination countries so much more than safety from violence. So just as Elise, when you if you if I were to welcome you in my house, I wouldn't open the door and turn my back <laughs> to you, right? Um, because that wouldn't be welcoming. It would be quite rude. Uh, countries need to do a little better with their notion of welcome when it comes to people who are displaced. Absolutely. And, you know, I love how you put up this uh, false dichotomy and highlight it. And I feel like many of your interlocutors and I have, uh, I think I have Israel in my mind as I do that, also push back against that. For example, they really invited you to think about refuge as a verb than refugee as a noun. Um, So can you speak to us about this choice and how Uh, this choice emerged in dialogue with community members. Yeah, so, you know, um, I'm not the first person to say this, but I think that our empirical and our theoretical framings of problems or of, you know, our world, our social world, are not distinct from each other. And just as I take a human-centric approach in my theoretical framing, I also, to the best of my ability, wanted to take it in my empirical framing. And what this looked like for me as an ethnographer is actually listening, like actually hearing what people were telling me. And so when Isra messaged me and she said, um, I hate the word refugee. And she said it to me when she was, you know, when we were doing the exchange that w- that became the the afterword, um, when I was asking her to write uh, the afterword and she said she preferred to do it in voice notes. So she kind of sent it as her last voice note and said, um, you know, I hate the word refugee. And I asked her why. And she said that she feels like it's victimizing, it's minimizing. And it wasn't the first time I'd heard it. Other people had said this to me too. And at that point, um, I had already finished writing the book, you know, because I did the afterward after I finished writing the book and I made a decision. But the book was always called Refuge. Um, And I made and I and I think to a certain extent, the book was always called Refuge because to me, there was a sort of question mark um, as to what that meant and as to what that process meant. But that conversation with Estrat was really the tipping point for me to begin to think about, okay, how else can I capture, how can I listen to her? um, And what does the noun do that a verb doesn't do, right? So the noun creates uh, permanency out of a situation that is unfolding, right? The only time that somebody is actually a refugee is in their legal status. They're never, they're never altogether in their human you know, form a refugee, right? Nobody is altogether a refugee. They're only refugee vis-a-vis the law, um, but we call them refugees. Um, They're also only a refugee for a certain amount of time because once they get legal status, they're a resident or they're a citizen. Um, They might be a refugee in the colloquial sense in that they have at some point pursued refuge, but that's certainly not their primary identity. So what I try to do with that um, flipping of the term is to think about, you know, refuge as a process, right? Something that people are are doing, something that people are seeking. And in doing so, I center again the human, right? Isra is seeking refuge. Isra is still Isra, 
but she is seeking refuge. She's also raising her kids. She's also trying to find a job. She's also, um, you know, proud of, of her children's success. She's also learning English. Um, you know, she's also a, a mother and a, a daughter and a wife. And when you, when you center verbs, right, when you describe somebody based on these multiple identities that we all hold, and when you center refuge, or when you think about refuge as just one part of that, I think it also sort of uh, caters or sort of builds on this human-centric notion that I was trying to uphold throughout the work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned the afterword, which really stood out to me because there you really center um, Syrian lives through their own narratives and it attests to this um, practice of listening that you were mentioning. So I'm curious about whether you see um, that portion as a form of unmediating or trying to find a way to um, really center your interlocutor's world as opposed to mediating them as a sociologist or as an academic. Yeah, I mean, I don't know to what extent this could be fully unmediated, you know, I, I, I wish there was a way for me to actually do it fully unmediated. Um, but what I wanted to do, you know, when people tell you their stories, they entrust you with so much. And when people open their lives to you, which is what happened particularly in the United States and but also in Canada, and allow you to become a, you know, almost a, a, a pseudo family member, people often joked that, you know, in Arab countries, we have a, a family file, which is how, you know, the IDs used to work for a long period of time. So you didn't have an individual ID, but instead you have a family file. And people would joke that they were going to add my name onto their family file, right? Um, I've become very well versed in jokes from Homs and, you know, um, in different people's accents. And um, I know the geography of a city I've never been in. So when somebody tells me where they live, I say, oh, that's down the street from X. And they say, yes, you know, because because I've just gotten so um, intertwined with people's lives. And when you do that, um, you you gain a lot, right? But there also um, means that there are things that I know are meaningful to them that are not part of the story that I was telling, right? Because I was telling the state-centric, you can only tell one story with a book. You can tell maybe some intricacies, but you can't tell, you can't, it's, it is mediated, right? By definition to write um, for an audience because it's my understanding of what I think is the most important parts of the story and how I can get that to the audience. And so what I wanted to do with the afterward is create a space for folks to talk about things that are meaningful to them that I didn't get to address, but also for them to tell us because I, I the book is the first three years of their lives in the United States, Canada, and Germany. And by the time I finished writing the book, it was five years. And so, you know, I wanted them to also catch us up on what had happened and how they perceived their lives in those five years. Um, And it was really a beautiful experience because Israel, for instance, talks about being a mother and the cultural expectations and the divide between what she expects for her children and what they expect for themselves. Um, Rajet also describes being a mother, right? The first one. She also talks about her motherhood. She also talks about community um, issues, right? The different um, experiences within her community. Um, You know, she talks about also, you know, her children, her aspirations for her children. She talks about how difficult it was for her and how the displacement, um, you know, and her, her children actually end up going to a private school for 
for a while how her displacement and her children going to the private school felt like another displacement, another separation that she wasn't ready for. Um, you know, it, people talked about work opportunities and aspirations for themselves and, you know, an understanding of what their lives were like that I, and I was, I was surprised by some of it. I didn't know all of it. Um, and I think that's what, uh, you know, was so wonderful about that afterward is that it really created space for people to sort of talk back in a sense, though they weren't talking back to the text per se, but they were speaking uh, a sense of the, the, their truth to us. Um, and I thought that was a really, um, you know, I, I, I really loved that part of it. Um, and, and being able to hear their unfiltered and have their unfiltered voices written in the text. Yeah, I really loved it too. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, building on the Stradon methodology, I also want to learn more about your comparator methodology, um, especially for our listeners who might be working on comparator projects. What was in your methodological toolbox to carry out the comparison between the contexts you chose? Yeah, so, um, you know, I tell students when they ask me about comparative work that I feel like comparative work, particularly in sociology, and I don't know if this is true in anthropology, you can you can teach us, um, <laughs> is is fetishized. Meaning there's like this demand and this like thing, this thought that if I do comparative work, it's better necessarily than doing one case. Um, I don't subscribe to that. I don't think that's true. So for me, the methodological, um, you know, the, the way that I ended up with a comparison is because when I was speaking, and again, it's a listening thing, when I was speaking and learning from people in New Haven, um, I really saw the impact of the welfare system on them and how they were, they felt like they were struggling with American poverty and how they, the policies were structured for them to struggle. And I really wondered what, that policy framework would be like in other countries. And because I didn't, I wasn't an immigration, uh, I didn't come from a background of studying immigration, I came from a background of studying policy. Um, so my questions were more policy oriented, which I think, uh, you know, is what allowed me to be able to tell this story is what freed me to be able to tell this story in the way that I told it. Um, and so I followed my instinct that this was something and what I, not just my instincts, but also what I was learning, right? What I was told. Um, and, and at that time, Justin Trudeau in Canada was, had promised to resettle 25,000 uh, Syrians if he won the premiership. He did win and he was making good on that promise. And it was very cheap to fly to Canada in February of 2016. Um, so I had the budget even as a grad student to do it. Um, and then I was able to, to raise money to do the European case after some advisors said, you know, you should, if you're going to do a comparison, you should really get a third case, maybe a European one. Um, and initially, actually, Elise, I went to Italy. I have two years of fieldwork in Italy. Um, but the Italian case was so different because they have a decentralized system of administering social services. And so it didn't, it wasn't a good comparison. And this is something else I want um, to stress to students here is that, you know, it's okay to make mistakes, right? I learned a lot from the Italian case um, about how Europe works, about the borders, etc. but it didn't end up making it into any of my writing and that's okay too. Um, and I used the funding, I redirected the funding to do, be able to do interviews in Germany um, and also some ethnographic fieldwork in Germany. And that's the third case that ends up making it into the book. 
Absolutely. I love how, you know, what doesn't go into the book shapes the book as well. Um, so that's super helpful to hear. Um, so before we wrap up, I want to learn more about what is next for you. What are some new projects, questions, classes, maybe labs, as you mentioned, are you working on? Yes. So I am currently working on my second book, um, which is called The Cost of Borders. And this book really emerges from refuge. So when I was doing interviews in Germany, um, I started the interviews. I always start every interview with tell me about your life before you ever thought about migrating, because I feel like um, that question really clarifies the dynamics and the multidimensional, um, you know, human experience of, you know, being in place uh, before you're sort of having to move out of place. Um, but I also ask about, tell me about how you got from place A to place B. Okay, so you decided to leave Syria. Why, why did you decide to leave when you decided to leave? But also, how did you get to the destination country? How did you get to Germany? And people told me these stories of, you know, having to pay smugglers to get out of Syria, having to pay an additional set of smugglers to get from Turkey to, uh, to Greece, having then to pay smugglers to go all the way up through Greece to, to Germany. And it was the costs were racking up. You know, it costs about $1,000 at that time to get on the boat. Um, it costs an additional about $1,000 to get through Europe. Um, and depending on where you were in Syria and what your position was and when you left, it could cost anywhere from, you know, nothing to a couple of hundred dollars to also thousands of dollars. And uh, and when I interviewed people who had left Syria maybe in 2014, they told me about higher prices. So the boat, instead of costing $1,000, cost $2,500. And when I talked to um, women, one woman told me that she hired somebody. She paid somebody else's fare because she was afraid to travel alone. And older people or people with families with young children described having to pay more because they had to pay taxis, whereas others could walk. And it began to make me think about, you know, what are the costs of borders? What are the costs of crossing borders? How they differ for different people at different intersections of inequalities, but also the exorbitant amounts that countries are paying to keep people out. So as we know, there's an EU-Turkey agreement. You know, Poland, for instance, is building a 350 million euro wall. The United States spends billions each year on border enforcement and security. And, um, and inspired by Gloria Anzaldua's idea of, you know, borders uh, and frontiers as being where the third world grates against the first and bleeds, I began to think about these frontier zones between the North and South, so the U.S.-Mexico border, but also Greece. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll also do something, I'm thinking about perhaps something also in Australia, but I, I'm not there yet, um, to theorize the border as a transaction series of these costs that's always costly and often deadly. Um, so that's the project I'm working on now. I spent the last semester in uh, two semesters ago in Greece, uh, the fall of last year I spent in Greece. I'm going back to uh, and I spent spring break in Tijuana. I'm going back to Tijuana on Monday for a month um, and then I'm going back to Greece uh, for a month as well this summer. Um, and so this is the this is the next project I'm working on. I'm also working on a project on trafficking laws in the United States and their relationship with law enforcement. So today, earlier this morning, I had two interviews with people who are survivors um, of trafficking and who had gotten um, legal status in the United States vis-a-vis -vis this uh, this status. So those are some of the things that I'm that I'm working on right now, and continue to collaborate with folks on questions of resettlement as well. So um, keep a lookout for those for those things. 
We absolutely will. I hope you write those books as soon as possible and we can have you back <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> I hope so too. I hope so too. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you very much, Heba, for joining us and for your insights. Elise, thank you so much for reading, for engaging, um, and for and for chatting with me. And to everyone who's still listening, thank you for tuning in um, and for supporting me and my work. And I look forward to hearing from you all. I think I speak on behalf of everyone that it was really our pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm your host, Aliza Rujan. This discussion of refuge, how the state shapes human potential, published by Princeton University Press in 2022, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Thank you for listening.